Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors for Oxford's journal Global Symmetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you on this podcast Matthew Goodman. Matthew is currently the William E. Simon Chair in Political Economy with a focus on the Asia Pacific region at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Prior to that, uh, Matt held a number of uh, government positions, including being Director of International Economics on the National Security Council staff, responsible for the G20 and the then G8, and in fact, he was the YAC, as we call He was the former White House Coordinator for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, and the East Asia Summit. Prior to that, Matt held uh, positions uh, at the Treasury Department and at the American Embassy in Tokyo as well. This is episode 18 in the series uh, on Shaking the Global Order, uh, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Uh, With Matt, we discuss uh, U.S. trade policy in the Asia-Pacific region and with reference to the phrase that's being used in the Trump administration, the Indo-Pacific. We also explore beyond U.S. policy, China's policy in trade and security following the 19th Party Congress, and as well, uh, Japan's trade and security policy with Prime Minister Abe at the helm. So, join with me as we begin the conversation with Matt Goodman. So, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to welcome you, Matt, to this episode 18 and another in our series, Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Nice to be here. Great. So, uh, uh, Matt, let's let's talk about kind of the big picture here, uh, trade and security policy. Um, presidents for quite some time now uh, have promoted a variety of initiatives in building kind of a, what has been described as the liberal international order, you know, the United Nations, the Bretton Woods agreements, trade initiatives, economic cooperation, human rights, arms control, a whole variety of regimes to protect uh, the global environment. Uh, President Trump, on the other hand, uh, when he came into office, immediately withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, He, uh, back in the summer, withdrew or terminated uh, the, uh, the Paris Agreement for the United States. He's repeatedly threatened to withdraw uh, from the NAFTA with the ongoing negotiations, and he's threatened to withdraw from the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. Um, According to you, in fact, uh, the president gave away the most powerful tool he had by, um, in fact, uh, uh, terminating uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and rather than replacing it with some alternative regional regime, uh, has spent a fair bit of time, including his recent trip to Asia, criticizing the trade partners, including uh, key strategic allies, for all sorts of unfair trade practices and 
uh, feeding imbalances, the trade imbalances with the United States. If what do we make of it, and then what should Trump's foreign economic policy be in Asia? Well, I think you've characterized the uh, the, the the change. Uh, appropriately. I think Trump has a different view about trade and about the U.S. place in the trading system. I think he believes that uh, we have been uh, taken advantage of somehow in the in the global trading system. And he's had a consistent view about this. It's really the only policy issue that he's had a consistent view about for 30 years. And so, uh, you know, to his credit, he has followed through on that uh, that view and that impulse uh, in the sense that, as you mentioned, he on if wasn't his first day, I guess his second or third day in office, but but pretty early, he he withdrew us from the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, something that you know the Obama administration had spent um, you know the last five or six years working on, and even the Bush administration before that had embraced um, as a as an early concept. Um, and, you know, without a lot of justification or rationale given as to why we shouldn't be uh, trying to get uh, this agreement uh, ratified, it had already been approved or, or agreed amongst the parties. Um, and so um, or and without replacing it with anything uh, clear uh, other than a sort of an attitude and a, a view that um, that, again, somehow in the Asia Pacific, we were being taken advantage of, particularly by um, China. And so um, I think that is starting something replacing the TPP view is started or, or the TPP as a as an instrument of U.S. economic policy in Asia is starting to emerge. But it's still pretty uh, incipient and not very well defined and still has an edge to it in the sense that it's focused on, um, you know, unfair practices by our trading partners and large bilateral trade imbalances. So. So it's still, at best, a work in progress. Well, uh, you know, we'll get to the what must he do, but part of, of what he's um, uh, being critical of in particular has been China's trade policy. And you, uh, speaking, you know, noting other Asian leaders uh, suggested at the same time China's trading partners have a growing bill of particulars about Beijing's mercantilist practices. So the question is, in the face of China's mercantilism, you know, the, the Americans appear, uh, with Trump policy, to be arguing for the equivalent. Does this make any sense in terms of um, a trading system? Yeah. No, I think that's right. First of all, I do think that that uh, there are a lot of um, problematic practices that China is pursuing, uh, whether it's um, restrictions on market access, on equity participation by foreign firms in the Chinese market, whether it's um, um, enabling theft of intellectual property or encouraging forced technology transfer, uh, whether it's um, creating competitive conditions that are that are untenable for foreign firms or using regulatory um, uh, tools to kind of harass foreign firms or making them uh, uh, use this cyber cybersecurity law to report, you know, what they're doing and, and limit their activities. There's there's a lot of uh, and subsidization and of, of national champions that, that in China that compete with foreign firms. There's, there is a lot of, frankly, bad behavior by China. And I think it's increasing. 
under the Xi Jinping administration. And this is a real problem for, I think it's a problem for China, but it's certainly a problem for, for the rest of us. And I think it's appropriate to be, uh, to be challenging them on those issues where, where they're really doing damage to, uh, to our interests and to the, the global order, frankly. So that I, I have no disagreement with. But, but the question is, um, is, is the best answer to try to lower ourselves to their level or to try to pull them up to global standards and, and of openness and, and high, uh, high standard rules and, and norms and so forth. So I, I think, um, you know, there is an argument maybe tactically for trying to use the threat of some sort of action uh, that might limit access by Chinese uh, traders or investors to our market as a tactical tool to get China to, to you know, to open up its uh, market or, or pull back from these practices. You know, there's a reasonable case to be made for that. But but the, you get the feeling that the Trump administration sees this as more than just a tactical tool, that that somehow, you know, closing down our market is an end in itself or withdrawing from the uh, from the uh, the multilateral or regional uh, system is is somehow uh, going to make us better off. And I, I disagree with that. I think that, you know, I think that we should be trying to push China to behave better but not at the price of um, of our own openness and and um, general openness and and uh, and uh, and abiding by you know the international order, the rules the, the rules of the international order. But I mean, uh, you know, it's fair to say that you have been critical yourself in terms of assessing, um, uh, you know, China's uh, trade and investment policy. But if you look at Trump's activities in Asia, recent uh, experience there with APEC and ASEAN and being in, in Japan and being in China, he didn't spend his time uh, criticizing the Chinese. He spent his time, if anything, in the big APEC speech and the ASEAN speech in criticizing, it would appear, his allies uh, and, and uh, those who he believes have taken unfair advantage uh, of the United States. So even if you're right in kind of, you know, saying, oh, here's the, you know, we got to worry about China's gaming the system, it doesn't seem to be where he's spending his, uh, his rhetorical time. Well, not when he was in China. I think when he's outside China, he has done more of that rhetoric. But, but you're right, when he was there um, in October, he... Um, uh, or early November, he uh, did uh, pull back um, from from his criticism of China. In fact, he went out of his way to sort of say that it's not China's fault that we have these problems. It's you know previous administrations that have been suckered into allowing China to take advantage of us um, was essentially his message. I think you know there are a couple of possible explanations for that. One is that he was just so uh, flattered and awed by the reception he received when he was in China that he didn't um, he didn't uh, you know feel that it was appropriate to be criticizing them on their ground home ground. The other is that there is a it was a tactical pullback uh, as they prepare as the administration here prepares uh, some very much tougher action and that is. Uh, very much the uh, the buzz here in Washington right now is that is that the administration is getting ready to announce some pretty tough measures and so but for whatever reason it's true that he did pull back and yet you know was uh, critical of Japan and Korea uh, not not you know not 
as much as he's been in other contexts, but he was he did send some zingers uh, past his uh, Japanese and Korean uh, hosts when he was when he was there, and and that is uh, that is um, odd given how much we have at stake with those allies. You know, when you think about things like North Korea or just responding to China itself. So, um, but he seems to feel that allies are not pulling their weight and are taking advantage of us in, in trade. And that still seems to be something that, uh, that he wants to talk about when he's, even when he's on their home ground. Well, let's just explore a little bit more Xi Jinping's policy, not in, and in particular looking at what appear to be his um, signal uh, initiatives, that is uh, what's now become uh, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's come under various names, but also the uh, AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, if you look at these, uh, there seems to, the Chinese policy seems to suggest a promise of over a trillion dollars in new infrastructure projects, trade agreements, people-to-people -people ties, coordination of policy in areas from health to agriculture. China says 68 countries and organizations have signed on to the the Belt and Road Initiative, including the World Health Organization and other programs at the UN. So uh, what do you make of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, the AIIB? Well, there's no question that uh, Xi Jinping has a different view than his predecessors about China's place in certainly the Asia region, if not in the world. Um, and he's willing to use China's new economic clout to push out uh, Chinese um, Chinese positions in both economic uh, in the economic arena and in 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 the security and diplomatic areas. And it's become very explicit. And in, in the 19th Party Congress held this fall, uh, it was it was clearly stated that that China is going to now be. Um, offering its model of um, socialism with Chinese characteristics to the rest of the world. It's going to be offering um, assistance um, in or economic support of one kind or another and in infrastructure and trade and other ways, as you mentioned. Um, and, and the old days of Deng Xiaoping's hide and bide strategy are over. That was very explicit. And the Belt and Road Initiative was actually embedded in the Chinese Communist Party constitution as a as as a, a Xi Jinping um, uh, initiative and you know part of his legacy and something that is now at the highest order of of priority for um, you know for the Chinese Party Communist Party but also for the nation. So it is it is going to be a, a major organizing principle. Yeah, you hear numbers thrown around as much as a trillion dollars. I've even heard four trillion by the time it's done. Uh, those are big numbers. There's no question there's a big need for infrastructure, uh, roads and bridges and ports and uh, railways and so forth across uh, this this large supercontinent of Eurasia and beyond. Uh, but uh, whether China is actually going to be able to spend all that money because it isn't clear that there are enough sort of bankable projects, as they say, to actually do all this. Um, so that's and, and there are questions about how China is going about this. Their practice when they've done these sorts of things in Africa and elsewhere have been that they haven't always followed the, the highest international standards of social and environmental safeguards and debt sustainability and open procurement and so forth. 
Uh, I think they're getting better at all those things, but there are still questions about how China is going to go about this initiative. But there's no question that, that it is a high priority and that China is going to be out there um, engaged in infrastructure investment and um, trying to um, use that as a way of, you know, I think a spectrum of motivations from promoting economic development and, and providing public goods at the sort of positive end through promoting uh, favorable commercial and trade patterns that, you know, lead back to uh, uh, China um, and to down to more of the sort of the darker end of the spectrum. Uh, part of this, I think, is designed to support their national security interests and even their military projection capabilities, if you think about some of these deep water ports that they're building. So I think there are a range of motivations. It's very much uh, going to be a part of the conversation about China. And I think the rest of us are going to have to find a way to, uh, you know, to get on board, uh, challenge things where they're not in line with international standards, uh, but, um, but have, and have some kind of alternative or response ourselves if we want to play in this, in this game. Well, and it takes, uh, takes us exactly to that point. What do you think U.S. policy uh, should be, and maybe its allies as well, with respect, and particularly Japan, with respect to infrastructure development in Asia? You know, what, what leadership should we uh, expect from the United States with respect to um, infrastructure development and uh, broader uh, relations in the face of the Belt and Road Initiative, in the face of the um, efforts uh, to uh, deploy financing uh, under the AIIB? Well, we don't yet, the United States doesn't yet really have a clearly defined strategy in this area of infrastructure investment in, in Eurasia, or for that matter, in the United States, uh, but certainly in this, in this um, theater in, in, in Asia. Um, we don't really have a strategy. Um, we, we do now have a, a kind of bumper sticker that's an organi organizing principle for our, our broader engagement, including in this area, um, which is the, the notion of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which is a term that uh, Secretary of State Tillerson used here at CSAS when he gave his first really major public speech uh, back in October. Uh, and in connection with that, Secretary Tillerson mentioned that part of this, uh, the, the, this objective of, of creating a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific was to create a region free of, I think, conflict and, um, uh, and um, instability and, he said, predatory economics. And when he was, when he was pressed on what predatory economics meant uh, by my boss, John Hamry, here at CSIS, um, he highlighted infrastructure finance and said China tends to go in and use concessional finance to gain, um, to sort of undercut the market in this business, and then to create uh, conditions of debt, um, uh, unsustainable debt uh, of the recipient countries, which in some cases puts them uh, at risk of losing sovereignty. And, you know, one example is this port project down in Sri Lanka, where China's taken a a 99-year concession on a port that they um, helped to to build, but the China that Sri Lanka couldn't afford to pay back, and so that um, that Secretary Tillerson expressed quite a lot of concern about, and said that the U.S. was going to develop alternative 
financing mechanisms and work with allies and partners to do that, work through uh, the World Bank and Asian Development Bank to try to uh, promote high quality infrastructure investment. The president echoed that in his speech at the APEC uh, meetings in, in v Vietnam uh, a couple of weeks later. And so this is, I think, now the organizing principle, but there's a lot of uh, detail that hasn't yet been uh, fleshed out in, in all of that. Um, so I think, you know, certainly I'm waiting to see how the administration carries forward those, uh, those objectives and sort of impulses in a way about, about uh, their concerns about what China's doing. There's no question that, you know, and, and you point to it in, in your recent writings, the, your monthly report, that, you know, they were uh, promoting this phraseology of the free and open Indo-Pacific. You just referenced it. But in looking again at his, um, their speeches, uh, but let's say Trump's speeches uh, to APEC, to ASEAN, uh, you know, you get no detail here. Is is there anything beyond the phrase? Well, as I say, the, there was a the only the only detail in the president's speech was again he mentioned using um, uh, development finance uh, tools, uh, and I think by that he didn't say this, but he, I think he meant things like uh, OPEC, the um, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is this you know quasi independent American um, uh, entity that promotes. Um, uh, really addresses sovereign risk in some of these big projects. Um, so he, he alluded to that. And then he talked about uh, working with uh, partners in the multilateral development banks and, and putting a higher priority on, on um, high quality infrastructure and in the World Bank and the ADB. But, but that's about it. Uh, beyond that, there wasn't a lot of detail. And, and I think, you know, the White House is working to try to flesh that out, but we haven't seen any details as of this conversation. Um, so I think we'll, you know, we'll see where this takes uh, takes them. Uh, but at least we're, I mean, the good news is I think at least we have recognized uh, the importance of this uh, story out in the Asia Pacific. It's really alongside trade and TPP and the regional comprehensive economic partnership and, you know, and, and other developments like potential Canada-China free trade agreements. Uh, there's many things going on on the trade side, but alongside that, uh, this infrastructure story is really the big topic du jour um, out there, and, and the U.S. has to have something to say about it. So the good news is at least they recognize that. Okay. I mean, I guess the only uh, other element uh, question here is, is, are we to take something uh, from this you know, wider notion? Others have used it, but the Indo-Pacific as opposed to the Asia-Pacific? or is that there's some strategic element to, other than saying, well, I got a different label than the label you got? Well, I think um, on one level, it's it's a, a renaming of something that's been around for a long time, which is that the U.S. Uh, needs to be engaged on all levels, you know, political, security, economic in this critical region. Um, it's been called different things. The Obama administration called this approach or strategy or even mindset uh, the pivot or the, to Asia or the or the rebalance it was later renamed. In some sense, this is just a new name. You know, no administration likes to use the last guy's uh, name for these things. So on one level, it's it's just another uh, acknowledgement of how important, how, what a stake we have in that important part of the world. I think the differences are that that it does uh, shift the uh, the title from the Asia Pacific to the Indo Pacific. 
uh, again, not completely new because the Defense Department, for example, has been using that concept for a long time. But Indo-Pacific uh, uh, emphasizes two things. One, obviously, the country of India. Um, and I think there is an interest in a greater strategic alignment with India because of its size and growth and, frankly, as a counterpoint to China, um, at least a hedge against China. Uh, and then the second thing that Indo evokes is, or Indo-Pacific evokes, is the maritime spaces uh, in which uh, the U.S. has an enormous stake, uh, again, from a security and economic perspective. And I think they were deliberately trying to highlight, you know, the Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean sort of um, uh, maritime reaches to, to say that we have a lot at stake there and we're going to be in there ensuring that that, that area – that broad area is free, open, and frankly, you know, um, where the U.S. is still uh, the, the the dominant player in terms of security provision and and ensuring um, stable and and uh, and beneficial um, economic relationships as well. Okay. Well, then, um, you know, based on these trips and discussions and speeches and so forth. What do you believe, uh, you know, the big powers, that is Korea in, in Asia, Korea, Japan, and China, what do you think they now understand as American policy and potential leadership uh, in Asia based on uh, all we've just talked about? Well, I think the good news is that as uh, someone, I guess Woody Allen originally uh, said, 80% of life is showing up. Um, in Asia, uh, it's often said that it's really important for a president to show up in the region and show that he cares and is interested. In, and President Trump gets points for that in the region because he did come and make this long trip to the region and stayed pretty much to the end. Um, and so that's good. He participated in all these forums, including you know some of the the multilateral forums that he had you know expressed. Sort of principled objection to, but he actually showed up and participated. Uh, there were no complete, you know, disasters anywhere, and there was even some some appropriate stroking. We talked about China, but he also, in his speech in Korea and his speech at, in Vietnam, he he spent at least half the speech talking about the wonderful progress that these countries had made and how uh, important it was that that you know, that countries like Korea and Southeast Asian countries and Japan and other other places had made so much progress and we wanted strong partners and so forth. So all that went over well. I think on the other hand, uh, there is this big hole in the strategy, which is uh, on the economic side, you know, what exactly is our post-TPP trade strategy? You know, what he talked about in the Vietnam speech was, was sounded too harsh, too unilateralist, too um, to protectionist sounding to Asian ears. And, and it didn't make a convincing case that, that we really had an, a comprehensive strategy. And so I think that there, there's a lot of doubt and worry about that. And then I'd say in, in the region, I mean, and then, and then there is concern about, about some of the rhetoric and, and perhaps even potential actions on some of the difficult issues in the region, like the North Korea situation in particular. And, and I think there is some anxiety about that uh, out in the region. And, and so um, he hasn't answered the mail on those issues yet. In fact, I think he's fueling uncertainty on on those issues. So so there's a, kind of a mixed review set of reviews, I think, out there. Okay. And 
you know, kind of picking up that thread, uh, uh, often described uh, the Trump policy that is on the bilateral as the America first strategy. Uh, uh, you said recently that, uh, you know, Trump is right to put America first, uh, but without uh, a coherent international economic strategy built on a strong domestic foundation, we stand little chance of rising to today's uh, challenge, and you specifically mentioned China. But, you know, it, I don't quite understand how you square up, you know, kind of bilateral uh, relations with a broader open uh, system, whether it's Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific. Yeah, no, I think that is one of the... Um one of the um, sort of issues that hasn't been sort of contradictions that hasn't been resolved yet. Um, and, uh, you know, when I used the term America first, I was being slightly, you know, ironic. Um, I was, I was, I was trying to say that if, if America first means that we're going to invest in ourselves and things like infrastructure and education and um, R and D and all the things we need to be strong economically, then I'm for it. And and if we're uh, secondly going to develop a, a a positive, comprehensive strategy that tries to uh, push out, you know, market liberalization across uh, the region and that uh, that that champions uh, high standard rules across uh, the region, then um, I'm for that as well. I think that's in America's interest and it's in the region's interest. Um, but we can't just uh, hunker down or, or be um, closing off our market, nor can we just push, I think, forward with a, you know, ostensibly bilateral approach. I mean, even if it truly were a sort of win-win bilateral approach, there would be problems with it because you know, frankly, it, it creates the risk of a sort of spaghetti bowl of different arrangements, and that's suboptimal. But but I think what I worry is it's not really even that. It's it's more unilateralism couched in bilateral uh, rhetoric. Um, really, the U.S. I think the Trump administration is looking for unilateral concessions by our trading partners. Uh, rather than willing to have a sort of back and forth, a trade, um, a, a sort of a, 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 a true um, win-win outcome. It's, 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 it feels more zero-sum still. And that's, uh, that's something that I don't think our trading partners uh, are, going to, um, are going to feel comfortable with, nor should they. Um, so until we get back in the game of, of promoting you know, regional and global uh, rulemaking norms, market opening, win-win uh, solutions. I, I think it's going to be uh, there's going to be skepticism, including from me. <laughs> well, certainly sitting uh, north of the border, one uh, increasingly believes that uh, you know there are uh, problems with uh, negotiating, uh, a, even on a bilateral. Well, not even, but on a bilateral level, given the kind of trade strategy uh, that we're seeing. With respect to uh, the NAFTA, but let me let me shift uh, for you to Japan a little bit just to get a feel here. You know, Abe is clearly being the most energetic uh, of leaders uh, in that part of the world in engaging Trump and the administration. He was the first one uh, to visit Washington after the inauguration. 
What does Abe believe, in your view, um, is the future of U.S.-Japan relations? Well, I think Prime Minister Abe has been, frankly, masterful at uh, managing this challenging situation with uh, the new president and his administration. I think he, he was the first leader even before uh, Trump was inaugurated to, uh, you know, to, to fly to New York and meet with uh, President Trump, President-elect Trump, and to give him a golden golf uh, putter. Uh, and and uh, they've played golf a couple of times now here in the U.S. and over in Japan when the president was there last month. Um, and so Abe's doing everything he can to kind of uh, establish a good good relationship and good chemistry. And I think it has been largely good chemistry. Uh, and I think it's done a lot to uh, offset some of this longstanding at the very beginning of this conversation. I mentioned that that Trump's had this 30-year view on on you know allies taking ungrateful allies taking advantage of us in trade, and Japan was clearly the target of that. I think there's still a sort of residual uh, sense of that in the back of Trump's head, but Abe's done a great job of pushing that to the background. I think he feels. Abe does that. That this alliance uh, between the United States and Japan is absolutely mission critical for him, and particularly if Japan wants to push out its own um, role in the region and the world. Uh, you know, and you know that back in Japan they're talking about constitutional reform, or Abe is trying to propose constitutional reform that would would unfetter Japan further in being able to use its uh, project its its uh, power. Uh, and uh, that's a high, really top priority for Abe, and he needs uh, a strong alliance with the United States in order to to uh, to realize that objective. And so he'll do everything he can. Um, you know, he's got political constraints, so he can't. Um, you know, he can't just bend over and give uh, Trump a uh, the kind of bilateral. FTA that our free trade agreement that I was mentioning earlier, where really it's unilateral concessions by the other side, uh, you know, there are going to be limits to how far Abe can go on that front. But short of that, I think he's trying to do everything he can to make uh, make Trump happy. Well, uh, okay, that's fair. But you know, the other piece of the puzzle, at least on the on, on kind of the trade side, is an unusual. Uh, unusual only in historical terms, um, a leadership role in trying to complete uh, the TPP with those actors who are um, still kind of in the TPP game, so often referred to now as the TPP 11. So, so what, you know, what is his, what's the strategy there in particular? Why has Japan uh, under Abe apparently taken such a strong leadership role with that. Well, he first of all, he does deserve Japan and Abe himself deserve a lot of credit for uh, pushing that TPP 11 um, uh, agreement forward, um, despite the the uh, the absence of the United States. Uh, uh, Japan has somewhat uncharacteristically been been able, willing and able to step forward and 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 lead this to. Uh, some sort of um, will get you know close to to, to final final agreement. Um, frankly, Canada has been less uh, constructive uh, in this regard, although although uh, finally went along with some sort of uh, some sort of uh, statement of progress in in, uh, in in on the margins of the APEC meeting. But but um, I think I think Abe's plan is to keep it alive, both for substantive reasons because. 
the rules that were established in the original TPP agreement on things like the digital economy, on you know intellectual property to some extent, although that's been neutered a little bit in the TPP 11, um, on um, you know on competition, on transparency, on um, the state-owned enterprise disciplines that were agreed to. Uh, many of these things are very important interests for Japan, and they want to keep those rules alive. So that's the sort of substantive reason he's 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 pushing this forward. And then and then, you know, he wants also the United, he wants to leave the door open for the United States to come back into a multilateral arrangement. And the best way to do that is to keep TPP basically alive with just a few things suspended. Uh, uh, but then to, you know, to be in a position to to reopen those things if the United States comes back, which. I think he expects they will. And frankly, I agree with that. I think eventually the United States will find it uh, in our own interest to come back to uh, a regional trade arrangement in in the Asia Pacific. It may or may not still be called TPP, but I think that uh, I think we will eventually come back. So I think that's that's Abe's um, that's Abe's bet as well. So he's been you know, he gets a lot of credit for keeping this game alive. Okay. yeah. Uh, Do you see uh, the the prospect of the United States coming back in in the context of this administration? I think it's going to be difficult in this administration. Um, you know, Trump has made such a clear statement of his opposition to TPP and to, to that kind of deal. Um, and his U.S. trade representative, Mr. Lighthizer, seems to share that that viewpoint. Um, and they have other priorities and so forth. I mean, it's not impossible if in the midterm elections in 2018, if the there's such a setback to the uh, Republican Party that it really uh, changes the nature of the Trump administration. That's possible, but not likely. Um, but I think it's going to have to wait until the, a new administration here. Um, and, you know, a lot of water will have passed over the dam by then again. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of um, situation the U.S., a new U.S. administration be walking back into. But I, I do think I just look at the, the compelling national interest of the United States to be involved in and even leading um, high standard rulemaking in the Asia Pacific through agreements like TPP. I just think that's a compelling interest. And, you know, you can you can diverge from that for a while, but you it's like a magnetic force that's going to draw us back eventually. Right. So, so Matt, let's um, the big question. And, you know, uh, I won't hold you to it in the next couple of years, but uh, you think uh, the liberal order can survive uh, the age of Trump and uh, the America First policy? You know, it's evident that uh, for many years the liberal order uh, has acknowledged that the United States has had a predominant role in the direction uh, of the order itself. Um, many American uh, politicians, rightly or wrongly, have, have referred to the United States as the indispensable nation, John Eikenberry, our colleague at Princeton, often re referencing and then others picking up on the fact that the United States has really played the hegemonic role in, in the system. So does the order uh, now collapse with uh, Trump's America First strategy or where do we go? Well, there's no question that the liberal economic order is under stress I and mean, that's not all uh, because of Trump. Uh, to some extent, he's a symptom of some of this. I, I think it's uh, the order is under stress, as I often say, from without and from within. I mean, from without in the sense that new players uh, like China and Russia and others 
are are sort of uh, uh, chipping away at it, um, either because they are think that the order has not been uh, fair in the sense of who's had the voice and the the shares and chairs, as it were, in the system um, to date, and they want to change that, or because they are somehow um, either uh, explicitly or implicitly, um, or in letter or in spirit, they are they are um, not following the rules of the order um, in many cases. Although in many cases they are as well, so it's not a it's not completely black and white. But in at the you know in some areas they are chipping away at some of the substance of the order. So that's the challenge from from without. And then from within, I think there's the 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 challenge of of the fact that the the order has not delivered the same broad benefits that it once delivered. And people are unhappy about that, certainly in the United States. I think in Europe, my guess is you're getting some of that in Canada, um, where, you know, you've got growing income inequality, you have, you know, stagnant wage uh, growth and income growth. Um, you have concerns about uh, technological change, concerns about globalization, uh, concerns about, you know, whether uh, you know, if you're a middle-aged worker, whether your children are going to have opportunities to uh, do better than you. And these things are, are real, uh, real challenges to the order uh, and to those of us who have um, advocated a strong global order. You know, I think we have to, we have, to have answers to those anxieties, and, and we haven't done a good job of that. And I think Trump tapped into that, and that's why he got elected. And, and so in some sense, it's not his fault. Uh, but it is true that I, from my perspective, he's not making it any better. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's making it harder for the order to, to kind of, uh, uh, address those challenges and, and, and be strengthened. Uh, because I still think, you know, this order for all its flaws, you know, has delivered, uh, better benefits to more people than any alternative in human history, or that really any alternative that you could actually conceive of in practice. Um, and, and so to me, it's not that it's not that it's perfect. In fact, you know, but the but the focus should be on fixing its imperfections rather than trying to bring it down. And I fear that, you know, the Trump administration is not focused on that. They're they're focused on tearing things down. Um, and so I do worry about the damage that's going to be done over these four years. But uh, but, you know, there are other constraints You've got Congress, you've got uh, the media, you've got think tanks like us, um, you've got international opinion, uh, you've got a lot of things that are hopefully going to work in um, in trying to keep the uh, you know the 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 the, the, the system stable and um, and intact. And you know we'll be back uh, because you know I'm an American and we're always optimistic. Long term, I think the U.S. will be back and the order will survive. One last kind of uh, question on that um, is: Does it make sense, from your perspective, that the focus is so much, at least with this administration, uh, on trade policy? I mean, is trade policy the source of the problem uh, for uh, all the anxieties and questions, or is it just kind of the symptom of, you know, a um, an order which is not producing the kind of uh, prosperity that we uh, that populations have come to believe in, countries have come to believe in over the last uh, seventy years. Well, trade policy and trade agreements specifically are an easy target 
because you can, you can, you can sort of uh, their well, because, uh, because of their, one of their strengths is they're at least the ones that we negotiate or they're, they're actually negotiated quite transparently, despite the criticism, they're actually quite open to, to criticism. Um, and boy, people have been going after them. I mean, things like TPP, uh, because it's an easy target. It's hard to, it's easy to criticize something like that, which has very explicit provisions on things that people can say they don't like. Um, and they, they can link to some of their economic anxieties, um, whereas it's harder to, uh, to, to criticize other changes in the economy like technological change, because who wants to criticize their iPhone, right? Whereas the iPhone has probably done more to undermine um, you know, worker security, arguably, except you know, those who are actually uh, producing them or, or you know, using them as a tool. I mean, so it's, it's a mixed story. Actually, I don't mean to diss the iPhone. It's actually, you know, it's, it's an empowering tool, but, but it is something that, uh, you know, the technological changes in our economy, you know, are, are, are probably the ones that we should be most worried about. If you think about, you know, the job that, that uh, I think more workers have in more states in the United States than any other, it's truck driver. There are a total of 3 million truck drivers in the United States today. Well, 10, 15 years from now, there may be zero truck drivers in the United States. That has nothing to do with trade. That's going to be because of, you know, driverless technology and so forth. And so what are we doing about that? Um, and, and I think that um, is why it, it's, it's not fair to blame trade, but it's sort of easy to, so or trade agreements at least. Um, again, I'm, I, I have sources of optimism because – you know, you, there's been polling by different reputable organizations, including Pew Research, and that show that a majority of Americans and a growing majority actually support trade um, in principle. Uh, they understand the importance of our being interconnected and being able to sell our things into other markets and take advantage of the benefits of imports even. Uh, you know, when you get more specific, there are more anxieties and different groups feel differently. But I, overall, I think it's it's not that we're I think we're, we're reverting to some you know pre-war isolationism on on these issues. I, I think that it's more complicated than that. But I'm you know I'm long-term optimistic that we'll you know we'll we'll answer these things. But we've got a lot a lot of work ahead of us. Okay. Well, I really want to thank you, Matt, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about some of these big issues, uh, uh, the liberal order, but uh, also uh, Trump policy in Asia and the policies of uh, Japan and others in Asia as well. I, I really appreciate that. Happy to do it. Enjoy talking with you, Alan.